Exodus chapter 32, 31 had finished with this explanation of how Moses had been in the presence of the Lord, and there were a lot of details that were given to us about what the law contained. So there was, uh, you know, very specific elements there about what their conduct should be, what the tabernacle should be constructed like, what the anointing oils should have for ingredients and preparation. So a lot of detailed explanation regarding the law and the nation of Israel and how they were to interact with God, particularly in the obedience to the law. Now in verse, uh, let's see, uh, uh, I'm on the wrong page here. How about we start on verse 1? Yeah, verse 1, now when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain. Now, before we move on, Moses hasn't delayed. And that is sort of the tone that's here is, you know, Moses is really taking his time. Moses is dragging his feet. Moses is taking forever getting back here. And Moses is, in fact, spending exactly the right amount of time with the Lord. He, he's doing exactly what the Lord has called him to. The followers are interpreting according to their own experience what they believe is going on. Moses is delaying the coming down. The people gathered together to Aaron and said to him, Come, make us gods that shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Uh, several things to examine, and I hope we're doing a lot of self-reflection as we look at these particulars here. They believe Moses is delaying his coming, that there's a, a purposeful thing that he's doing, taking his sweet old time uh, getting back. They don't have the proper respect for God. In their mind, false gods are as good as the one true living God, right? Make for us gods that can go before there's no such thing as a false god there's there's not any god behind that it's just a fake belief system in you know a replacement theology satan is saying to every heart that participates in idolatry yes 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 there's a god but let's all choose our own god let's make our own god fashioned in our image or fashioned after creation Rather than worshiping the right God, the true and living God, they have this mentality, all gods are equal. So clearly they don't know God the way they should, even though they've seen very powerful works uh, done and performed in regard to God. They look to Aaron, uh, the proper spiritual leader, but they look to him for the wrong answers. And that's very common inside our faith. People will look to the spiritual leaders that are over them, but then they want the spiritual leaders to say what they want to hear. They aren't there to receive from the spiritual leader that which comes from the Lord and may even be confrontational to them. They want the spiritual leader to say something that's appealing to their own heart. They rejected God in the process. You know, we don't know what's happened to Moses, you know, Nobody has to raise their hand in the room, but I think every one of us could figure out a quick way to find out what happened to Moses. If you can ask Aaron to make you an idol, 
you might be able to ask Aaron where Moses is, who might not even know, but he might be compelled because of his position to go inquire of God and actually come up with an answer. Instead, out of their sinfulness and out of their own practices, they manipulate their circumstances, and they're going to create some of the most terrifying circumstances for all of them in just a moment. I would remind us this morning, Hebrews chapter 5, beginning at verse 12, says, By this time, you ought to be teachers. You need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Spiritual maturity, spiritual leadership, these people have experienced tremendous works of the Lord. They've watched as the plagues have been poured out upon the nation of Egypt. They've seen God separate the waters and lead them through. They've experienced the coming of the water from the rock. They've experienced the manna and the daily sustenance and food. Now they've heard the voice of the Lord speak from Mount Sinai to the point where they've begged Moses to make that your voice, stop. You go and inquire of the Lord. Bring the message back. They've been through all of that, and yet profound, profound spiritual immaturity here in the moment. What do we know of their spiritual immaturity? It involves evil. They're rebelling against Moses. They're establishing an idol. You can see within their works the fruit of their flesh. Right? And people stand around and say directly to me, oh, I, how can you call that person a false teacher? How can you call that person a false witness? You know, that's not fair. That's unkind. That's somehow evil. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, judge not lest you be judged, right? And that's what everybody tries to cling to in that moment. Just seven verses later in the same passage, he says, you'll know the false teachers by their fruit. You're going to be able to examine their life and see the sinfulness in their life and know they're not following God. That means you need to examine the lives of your spiritual leaders. You need to put them under a microscope. I'm always wary when a spiritual leader says something like, oh, don't follow me. Why not? Is there something of your conduct and your behavior that I should be concerned about? Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ, right? And that's the only admonition I can give anyone because I'm still flesh, I'm still human, I still have my flaws. But I can say to you as a congregation, as an individual, you can follow me. The example that I'm setting forward, you can follow me. You can follow me as I follow Christ with your life. There are those that always divert and detract 32.2, Aaron said to them, Break off the golden earrings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters. Bring them to me. So all the people broke off the golden earrings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. 
he received the gold from their hand, and he fashioned it with an engraving tool. I want you to remember that. And made a molded calf. Then they said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. Now, they're literally taking the circumstances they've experienced with God, and they're now attributing them to this false God. You can look at that and understand that's blatantly wrong. That's an absolute lie. But as it moves forward, it gets more subtle. And that's often how sin works. You know, if it just shows up at your front door and announces to you that it's temptation and sinfulness, we usually slam the door right in its face and move on. When it comes in through subtlety and leads us into thinking that somehow we're fulfilling God's plan for our life, even in the temptation, then the failures start to pile up rapidly got to have the clarity and the maturity that was described there in Hebrews chapter 5 verses 12 through 14 that give us the understanding which is derived from maturity. Now, back in Exodus chapter 3 verse 22, the Lord spoke through Moses and Moses spoke to the children of Israel and said, every woman shall ask of her neighbor, namely, of her who dwells near her house, articles of silver, articles of gold, and clothing, and you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. The Lord was telling the nation of Israel, you've been held in a criminal way as slaves, and you've been robbed of your wages. So before you leave town, I want you to stop by the homes that are near you of these Egyptians who have enriched themselves upon your slavery. And I want you to ask of them goods and wares and wealth. Ask them for pay. As you're leaving town, you should be reimbursed for your work. They do. That's referred to as the plunder of the Egyptians, recorded right there in Exodus chapter 3, verse 22. They're supposed to do that. Unfortunately, this is one of the first things we see them do with their wealth. As soon as they've left out of Israel, as soon as they find themselves in a place of need, now they turn to their wealth, their materialism, and they convert their relationship with God over to the golden cow. We want to be very, very careful about the things of the world and the way we receive them in our hearts. There's a, there's a great danger in putting anything in any place that belongs to Jesus Christ. If we can look at our lives and we can examine, okay, this area should belong to the Lord. My temper, my, my tongue, you know, my truthfulness, these things should belong to the Lord. My emotional stability. We start putting other things in the place that lead and guide us and sustain us in those situations, we're doing the same thing. We're taking the things from the world and we're replacing Jesus Christ with them. Right? If they just set up another God, that'd be one thing. 
I mean, it'd be bad enough. But right now, what they're doing is setting up another God, and they're attributing the behavior and the characteristics of the one true living God to their now false God. It's a really dangerous prospect to begin to shift things around in that way. In verse 5, Exodus 32, when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. Do you see that? The Lord? You might want to even underline that. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That's the name of God. Tomorrow is a feast to Yahweh. We're, we're going to worship this false God, but it'll be a feast to Yahweh. Very, very normal human behavior to warp and twist things like this. Verse 6, Then they rose early on the next day, offered burnt offerings, and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now, listen, guys. The burnt offerings and the peace offerings, they've just learned this practice from the Lord about maintaining and developing their own relationship with the Lord. And what do they do? They make it part of their idolatrous worship. If we can look at the nation of Israel here and, and think for a second, there's a thing in our heart that sort of says, you know, if I could see miracles, if you could show me something supernatural, I'd be so much the stronger Christian. I'd believe so more readily. If I could just see. These people have seen firsthand. And they immediately step into gross, idolat gross idolatry. They're literally attributing their idolatry as worship of the one true living God. Our hearts are desperately wicked, Jeremiah told us. Deceitful above all things. We'll convince ourselves of things that don't even exist. Literally do not even exist. You want to take your time and search the scripture and let the scripture be your guiding force, not your opinions, not even the majority vote of the crowd, because that's what's going on right here. They're being led astray, rose up to play, to participate in the joyous celebration of their sin, and we'll see that described more specifically. 32.7, the Lord said to Moses, Go, get down, exclamation point. He says that with an urgency, a demand, an imperative command. For your people whom you've brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. Again, now the Lord is attributing these people as belonging to Moses. Right? They were my people. <laughs> they are my people. But at the moment, they're your people. You know, Parents understand this, right? Right? Parents, yeah, you'll never believe what your child did today. You know, you hear things like that along the way. It's similar. It is literally similar here. The people that are more like you, Moses, you know, far less like me, you need to get down there and pay attention to them because they've come right off the rails is what the Lord is telling you. They've brought you know, themselves down to this sinful place. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They have made themselves a molded calf and worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. See, God is truly everywhere. 
He's quoting Aaron. God is quoting what just came out of the people of Israel's mouth and what just came out of Aaron's mouth. God is never caught off guard. He doesn't turn around even in the depths of our failure and act surprised. Oh my God, I had no idea. How did you get into this? God is not stunned. by You, you might be stunned by your failure. Very often we are. are we not? I mean, it, we, it kind of smirk. It's a little humorous, but it really is kind of scary. We convince ourselves things are going to turn out differently than they actually do. If we examine our heart when it's all done, we have to admit, I knew this was going to happen. I knew what direction we were going. I knew how this was all going to play out. Why? Because it wasn't in accordance with God's will. The only one you really can predict is when you actually follow God's will. You follow God's will and you turn around and you're like, I can't believe the blessing. I can't believe what he's doing in my life. I can't believe all the, I can't believe the way he loves me. When we're failing, we act like we're surprised, but really I knew this was going to happen. I knew this was going to turn out this way. You want life to be a surprise? Start following the Lord. Start submitting yourself to Christ. The predictable path is the path of self-will that turns out the same way every time that that old thing we say about you know repeating the same thing over and over expecting a different outcome is one of the you know most sure signs of insanity you know where that came from the early uh 1900s the man who was in charge of the entire a sane, insane asylum for uh, England. Uh, he's an officer of the law, and his oversight, Richards was his last name, his oversight was very controversial. But he had some tests. One of them was that. Do you continue to do the same thing over and over again, expecting a different outcome? That When we say, oh, that's a surefired sign of insanity, he literally, literally used it as a test. To see, are these people under my care continuing to participate in the same you know, ill-fated behavior, expecting the outcome to be different? And another thing he did, which everybody hated, was when it came time for him to release somebody, he had the final say. He would take them to a janitor's closet, and he would have them just stand in the janitor's closet with him while he packed the drain of the sink full very tightly. And then he would hand them a mop and a pail, and crank the water on, walk out and leave them in the janitor's closet. If they would just reach down and pull the plug out of the sink and let it drain, he would agree with the court's findings and allow them to be released. If they did anything with that mop or pail, they're staying. If they start trying to mop the water as it's flooded, if they're trying to catch the water and do dispose of, if they don't do the logical thing, and do what makes sense, then he would keep them incarcerated. Our world needs that common sense. Amen? Co common sense has become so uncommon. It's really strange. Way off course. So let's get back to this. <clears throat> this, is an, this is an insane, repetitious path that they're currently on. Here, they've made this golden calf and they've worshipped it. And they're saying, you know, the Lord is saying, 
You know, this is there. They are saying this is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. There, there's a big exclamation point on the end of that, in my opinion. There's an exclamation point. I think God is ticked off. If he is the one who brought them out of Egypt, what he is, what is this garbage that they're currently engaged in? This is very much a grievance uh, to the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, I've seen this people, and indeed it is a sniff-necked people. How interesting for me to log that away and move all the way forward to the New Testament. And there's the Holy Spirit. Jesus has been crucified and buried and resurrected in 40 days of ministry and ascension to heaven. Holy Spirit has been poured out on the apostles and it is now just moving through the community of Israel and Jerusalem. Massive changes. 3,000 people come to the Lord in one day. It's a huge, powerful work within the church. And they're going to stone Stephen to death. And Stephen stands in front of them and he preaches the most brilliant summary of their history and their relationship with God. And then he gets to the end and he says, you stiff-necked heart of heart, you do always resist the Holy Spirit. And then they stone him to death. This stiff-necked people, how unfortunate it is that this is their historic characteristic throughout time. Now that you're all discouraged, take it as an encouragement because God continues to love them and work with them. The same as he does you and me. For our stiff-necked, hard hearts, his grace continues. God's love continues to shine out in our lives. Let us respond to it in kind. Amen. 32.10 now, therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may be burn hot against them, and I may consume them, and I will make of you a great nation. But you know what, Moses? Let's just etch a sketch the whole program. Let's just wipe everybody out. Just wipe the slate clean, and I'll take you, and we'll start. Same place I began with Abraham. We'll start with you, and we'll build a magnificent nation out of you. But these people have got to be disposed of. I don't know about you, but for me, my pride is huge enough that if I heard that, I would probably think that's a great idea. I'm hung out with these people. They really are stiff-necked and hard-hearted. And I certainly am the cream of the crop, so... It makes sense that you'd want to take me and start, you know, in our pride. We probably would jump right on that bandwagon. Maybe not you. You can pray for me. But Numbers chapter 12, verse 3 tells us, Now the man Moses was very humble, more than all men who were on the face of the earth. I take it two ways. It's a difficult passage for me. Moses has proven out to me that he's the most humble man on earth. And I'll trust this because this is God's word. And God's word is without failure. It's infallible. But Moses did write that himself. When you start claiming to be the most humble man in the world, you better be the most humble man in the world if you're going to put that on your own business card. You know what I'm saying? 
No, no, hear me. If you've read that about Moses, I, if you're like me, one of the first things I'm going to do in examining Moses is find out, is this guy really humble? You make a claim like that, especially as a believer, you better prove it. You make claims about how gifted you are, how kind, how benevolent. That's going to be tested. Tested. He's receiving the test right here. God is saying, you know, let's just wipe everybody out and start over with you. Moses is about to say that's not a good idea. He proves his humility in verse 11. It begins, then Moses pleaded with the Lord, his God, and said, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people? whom you've brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand. Why should the Egyptians speak and say, he brought them out to harm them, to kill them in the mountains, and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce wrath and relent from this harm to your people. Now, I would encourage you, I'm a serious student of the King James Version. I, I very particularly enjoy its accuracy for study and preaching. It contains the word here, repent, and that can be confusing for some people because it implies in our thinking that the person or the individual was in sin and they've turned around and they're not in sin and now they're going the opposite direction. Repent literally means just to go the opposite direction. God was intending to wipe these people out. And it was Moses' pleading that changed his mind, that caused him to not wipe them out. Now, great philosophical debates begin at this point of, could God ever change his mind? Did God really mean it when he said he was going to wipe them out? Or did he really mean it when he said he was changed? Where do we begin? Where do we end? I leave it off right there. I don't find much use for all of that argument and discussion. It's very simple. God was going to wipe out the nation of Israel. Moses pleaded on their behalf, and God changed his mind. You struggle with that? Then you're struggling with the word of God. You're probably examining certain philosophical debates too deeply. It's very simple. God was going to kill them, and he changed his mind because of the humble pleading on Moses' part. Why should the Egyptians speak? You know, he's making the claim for our own faith. This would be horrible. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have spoken of, I give to your descendants and they shall inherit it forever. My suspicion is, my suspicion is this is already the way that God is thinking, but he's allowing Moses to process through the whole thing. You can't do this, God. You can't wipe these people out. Why? You've made promises to them which are part of your word, which are eternal. Uh, to me, this is an evidence that God's word never changes. That what he has said he's going to follow through with. My children, my daughters, all have a memory of an occasion where I drove through the McDonald's. Right, right now, this one over here is just, it's a huge debate in our family. <clears throat> we were out late, and uh, I had already said several times, people are hungry and people are tired. 
in my vehicle. They're all whining and crying. Okay, they're, they're asking questions. How about that? About can we go out to eat? And I'm saying, no, I don't have the money for that. And we're close to home and we're just going to drive home and we're going to go out to eat. And it doesn't stop. And parents, isn't that an enjoyable thing when your young ones will not lay off? And this negotiation has finally gotten down to, well, uh, you at least just drive through the drive through at McDonald's. Yes. <clears throat> Mean, correct. Yeah. Like killing an entire nation. Mean. Right? I drive around the building. I drive right up to the speaker. I drive right past and out the exit. They still need therapy to this day from that one experience. Here's my explanation. My yes is yes, and my no is no. I've already said repeatedly, we're not going out to eat, and people won't stop. I'm not just bringing it up to make some coarse point. Our yes needs to be yes, and our no needs to be no. Jesus makes a very solid point about this. One of the biggest problems in parenting, parents, is inconsistency. Saying you're going to do something and then not doing it. You've got to also follow the example of the Lord here. That even when the punishment is deserved, you can recognize the need for grace and mercy. Forgiveness. Consistency is one of the most important things as a parent that you need to develop. It's the inconsistency that they prey upon, take advantage of. Verse 14. So the Lord relented from the harm which he had said he would do to his people. Moses turned and went down from the mountain. The two tablets of the testimony were in his hand. The tablets were written on both sides. On the one side and on the other, they were written. Now the tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. That theme echoes all through the scripture, all through history. This is God's word written by his hand. This isn't something we've invented or created. This is his work. Verse 32, verse 17 says, Then Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted. He said to Moses, There is a noise of war in the camp. Now, it's a big party that's going on, and we're going to see how this plays out. But Joshua hears war. And I know I'm reading too much into it, but I'm going to run down that road a little bit with Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, that says we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, <clears throat> but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. There is a war going on. Even though the people are presently in, engaged in a giant party, there's a war happening at the same time. It's the spiritual war 
that they've caved into, that they've given into, that they've been defeated in, and they're now participating in this great sin. Joshua is not as far off base as it seems. But he said, it's not the noise of the shout of victory, nor, nor the noise of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing I hear. He's misinterpreting what he's hearing. So it was. As soon as he came near the camp, that he saw the calf and the dancing. So Moses' anger was very hot or became hot. He cast the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. And he took the calf which they had made, burned it in the fire and ground it to powder. And he scattered it on the water and made the children of Israel drink it. Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought so great a sin upon them? I want you to notice something. <clears throat> Moses says to this priest, to this pastor, What was it that the people did that was so powerful? that caused you to fall into sin this way. It'd be nice if when we failed, when we fell into sin, we could describe some horrific temptation. Not that that would make it better, it's still sin. When the scripture asks us the question, which of you has resisted unto bloodshed? That's a very legitimate question. Because most of, uh, most of the time, our entire resistance can be measured in seconds. Not even minutes or days. Here comes the temptation, and uh, okay, and down the road we go. Very little resistance to it. That should tell you, number one, how vulnerable we are in this situation. And here, also, hear this congregation. Moses puts the question forward, but then notice how he ends when he says, you have brought so great a sin upon them. There's a responsibility of the priest, the pastor, to care for the spiritual health of his congregation, and that means he's going to have to get very personal at times. He's going to have to confront these people. More than anything, it's cowardice. It's cowardice that led Aaron and these people to where they are. It's cowardice. Just not standing up for what's right. So Aaron said, Do not let the anger of my Lord become hot. You know the people, that they are set on evil. Now, uh, to begin with, Aaron puts a title on Moses that we haven't seen much up until this point. The term is kiriosk, Lord, Master. You'll notice that right here when he says this, do not let the anger of my Lord, it's a lowercase l. Aaron is talking about Moses. Certainly it has the inclination to God, but he understands, I'm supposed to be in submission to you. And then what does he do? He tags the people with the responsibility. 
This was their desire. Look, even if this was their desire within the camp, Moses, excuse me, Aaron made the calf and gave them the opportunity of idolatry. That's his responsibility. So Aaron said, do not let the anger of my Lord become hot. You know the people, they are set on evil. For they said to me, make us gods that shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. All of that's accurate. He said to them, and I said to them, whoever has any gold, let them break it off. So they gave it to me. I cast it in the fire, and this calf came up. Everyone that just laughed deals with children regularly. We weren't doing anything. Nothing happened. That's why all of this is broken. Who did this? No one. You'll hear all kinds of excuses that are supernatural. <laughs> Literally. We did nothing. And all of this bad happened. Supernaturally. I just put the gold in the fire. The calf just sort of walked out, crazy as it is. I'm telling you. Lies. Lies. We have a sort of threshold in our heart and mind where if we're not going to be truthful, we won't tell the whole truth. I've seen it many, many times working with law enforcement, doing jail ministry, being involved in ministry. There are people who, they're not going to admit what they've done, period. But when they're caught red-handed, they'll at least admit all the way up to where their real guilt exists. If you can't confirm every single element of what has been done, they're not going to confess it. Why? Because they're not willing to confess any of it. They're just caught, right? There's an old English term called lamentation, to be filled with sorrow, to lament, right? I just mentioned a moment ago, repent. Repent is to turn around and go the opposite direction, particularly with your moral behavior. There's a huge difference between lament and repent. Being filled with sorrow, even regretting intensely what you've done or what has occurred, lamentation doesn't equal repentance at all. Not even remotely. It doesn't matter how filled with sorrow we are about the circumstances. It requires the turning around and going the opposite direction. I, I cast it into the fire and this calf came out. Now, when Moses saw that the people were unrestrained, for Aaron had not restrained them for their shame among their enemies. Now, this explanation, this portion of this passage is referring to the fact that, forgive me for just blurting this out so crassly, the entire nation is engaged in an orgy at this point. This is music and food and celebration and sex and sinfulness to the maximum. They're completely unrestrained. Why? Because the pastor 
didn't restrain them. It's the job of the pastor to restrain them. That's a heavy load to carry. That it's my responsibility to stand in the gap and warn and say and do what is necessary. That isn't because I'm sinless. It's not because Aaron's perfect. It's the role he's been given. It's the anointing on his life. Think about all the detailed explanation about anointing we read in the last two weeks. That only belongs to Aaron. It's his job. It invokes the vision of his relationship with God. God pouring himself out upon him continuously. That flowing off from him into the lives of the people who receive it. The anointing is from God. The minute that the congregation doesn't respect the anointing, they don't respect the minister. The minute they don't respect the minister, this is where we end up. It's a treacherous thing that occurs within the body of Christ. We want to be very careful about it. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13, or chapter 13, verse 17 says, Obey those who spiritually, is what it's referring to, rule over you, and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give account, that is, to God and to men, the, the role of of pastor, leader, let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. For you. Why? Because if you're not in obedience to the spiritual leadership God has put in your life, then that means you're going to be living in sin. And if you're living in sin, well, that's clearly unprofitable for you. The obedience. This isn't like cult leader weirdness. This is a matter of Aaron has to answer for what he's done right here. Every pastor that stands in this pulpit has to answer for what he's done amongst the congregation. This is a job. This is the role. This isn't a vocation. This isn't, oh, let's find a guy who's a brilliant orator, who speaks well. Let's just stick him up there. I don't want that guy there if he's not going to be there to guide my life. He's not going to be there to even restrain me, as it says here. Read verse 25 again. When Moses saw the people were unrestrained, for Aaron had not restrained them to their shame among their enemies. Not going to be really able to preach anymore your message amongst the heathens when this is the way you've acted. Right? I mean, what's any different about you? What's any different about your conduct? What, why would we choose your God? There's nothing about the relationship from this failure that would be attractive to them. Verse 26. Then Mo Moses stood at the entrance of the camp and said, Whoever is on the Lord's side, come to me. Hey, listen. If we did this today... There are a lot of people inside Christianity who would hear that statement from Moses and they would say, see, told you this guy was arrogant. Moses just said, none of you are on God's side. If you'd like to be on God's side, 
you need to come over here and join my church. That's pretty arrogant, <laughs> unless you're right. If you're God's holy anointed man in all of history, Moses, you can say that. You can stand up and say, no, I know what I'm doing is right. And if you want to be within the will of God, you can come over here and stand with me. You don't want to? You can just go do your own thing. There is no requirement of you. If you want to be right with God, that's going to mean you're going to have to agree and partner with me. No, then you just continue to go do your own thing. All the sons of Levi gathered themselves together to him. He said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Let every man put his sword on his side and go in and out from entrance to entrance throughout the camp and let every man kill his brother. Every man his companion and every man his neighbor. So the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And about 3,000 men of the people fell that day. Then Moses said, Consecrate yourselves today to the Lord, that he may bestow on you a blessing this day. For every man has opposed his son and his brother. Because, listen to this, because you've chosen to follow my word. And you have you know, gotten rid of the people who were rebelling against God's word. You're going to receive a blessing. I can guarantee you there's no joy in this camp on this day. No, nobody's in celebration currently. Not with 3,000 dead amongst them. The giving of the law, the day that the law arrives in the camp, 3,000 people died. You move forward to the New Testament, when the Holy Spirit arrives, 3,000 people become believers that day. They're submitted and obedient to the word. We're seeing here what happens when people rebel against their leadership and against God's word. Now think about this, you guys, those of you that have studied the scripture, you think about the likes of Saul, right? Saul was a leader amongst Israel. He was anointed by God, but then he fell into sin. And the scripture even tells us that God's spirit was taken away from him. I want you to notice that at no point does God tell his people to stop obeying the man who's in authority. David's in that cave in Adullam, right? And he just takes his knife out and cuts the hem of his robe away. And after Saul leaves out of the cave, David stands and shows him. Meaning, I could have slit your throat. I just cut the hem of your robe off. David repents of that later and says that he had sinned against God for even touching God's anointed. You see, if God anoints Moses, if God anoints Aaron, then God has the ability to unanoint them and remove them and take them out of the way. 
Our enemy gets inside people's heads and whispers, and before you know it, you've got a clan of Judas that's hanging out. And they're whispering and backbiting and feeding the problems. And they're negative. And if you've got negativity, they foster that negativity in you. Division is the end result. Destruction is what comes of the whole process. Here, Moses is gone. That dude is taking way too long. We should have a party. Everybody likes to party. And before it's done, they've created an idol, and they're all living in sin. It's a really tragic outcome in the whole process. You want to you be on God's side? You're going to need to come and stand with me. Now it came to pass on the next day that Moses said to the people, you've committed a great sin. So now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sins. Again, I, I just dwell on these small points. Uh, atonement, at one meant. That's literally the compound word that you're reading there. I'm going to go up and talk to God, and maybe we can make you, the congregation of Israel, at one with God again. Now you know the humble heart of this man. His only desire is that the people would be right with God. When he stood up and said, you want to be right with God, you come over here and stand with me. That wasn't out of arrogance. That wasn't out of pride. Moses wasn't whispering quietly over his shoulder, don't these people know I'm the most humble man alive? None of that selfishness was going on. Moses' concern is only that these people need to be right with God. That needs to be the characteristic of our spiritual leaders, the burning desire in their hearts that we as a follower, would be right with God. Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, Oh, these people have committed a great sin and have made for themselves a gold, a God of gold. Now you can just take that one statement right out of the middle of this verse and transport it somewhere that you would remember it. The people have made a God of gold. Be it wealth or money or possessions or materialism, we want to be very cautious as Christians about making things our God through money or possessions or however it may be. No contentment in our heart, no fulfillment unless we're buying, unless we're possessing, unless we're owning and getting and acquiring. Can, can we be without all of that completely and still find a contentment and a happiness in our heart? Consider the subtlety of mammon and materialism, how it creeps in. Yet now, if you will forgive their sins, but if not, I pray, blot me out of your book, which you have written. If you're going to wipe them out, please wipe me out with them. And he's sincere about that. It's an ultimate expression. I'm part of them. This is who I am. I'm no different. Than them, and if and if it is seriously that we need to get rid of the nation of Israel, please, please don't use me as the new model to build the nation from. Just wipe me out with them. There's a humility here that Moses recognizes. I'm no better than them. I'm no I'm no different than them. You give me the right circumstances, I would have done these same things. 
you know, if you blot them out, blot me out. The Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. Now, therefore, go lead the people to the place of which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit for punishment, I will visit punishment upon them for their sin. I'm only going to punish the people who sinned. I'm not going to come down on the entire nation for this. There's a great spiritual message there. The tribulation which lies ahead of us is God's punishment on a God-rejecting and a God-hating world. That's not us. And as Paul said, we're not reserved for wrath. As God is saying right here, no, when the day of punishment comes, I'm going to visit that punishment upon the person that had sinned. Trick question. Don't raise your hand, right? Who in the room has sinned? It should be nobody. Why? Because we've been covered by the righteousness of Christ. We all in this room submitted to Jesus Christ as our Lord and King are sinless. Sinless. Not because we're perfect. Not because we follow and do things so well. Because Christ has purified us with his blood. With his life. He took our sinful, destined for hell life away from us. And he gave us his perfect life in the presence of the Lord for eternity. We are sinless per the work of Jesus Christ. When God comes to punish those who need punishment, we're not amongst them. We would naturally need that punishment. Christ received that punishment for us. We don't have to look forward to this. This is not our existence. This is what grace means. You've sinned so badly, somehow you feel like, I need to beat myself up emotionally. I can't just enjoy the grace of God and smile and raise my hands. You don't know what a heathen I've been. <laughs> Were you a murderer? Did you steal another man's wife and husband and have them killed? <laughs> Please don't raise your hand. <laughs> If you want to talk to somebody about that, there are lawyers you need to call. But anyway, man, David, accepted by the Lord. Did you look at the face of a little girl who was saying, aren't you a Christian? And say, may God strike me dead if I know who Jesus is. Did you do that? Peter did. Peter did. And the Lord restored him. The Lord took enough time to ask him, do you love me, three times, so that Peter could have each one of those occasions that he had denied Christ wiped away. You're a loser, whether you know it or not. If you're a spouse, they can help you with that understanding. Christ loves you, and he's forgiven you. We don't have the fearful looking forward to punishment. 32, verse 35, those that did, so the Lord plagued the people because of what they did with the calf which Aaron made. So very often I talk to people, and whether they'll say it with their mouth, their behavior proves they do not actually believe the scripture. Galatians chapter 6, beginning at verse 7, says, Do not be deceived. Now look away from the screen. Just hold that thought in your mind. 
and talk to me for just a second. Do not be deceived. That's, that's the strongest indicator the scripture can give you and I that there's a potential for being deceived. Right? Do not be deceived. God is not mocked, will not be mocked, is really what it's saying. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. This is planting, that's what sowing means. Harvesting, that's what reaping means. He who sows to his flesh will reap, uh, will of the flesh reap corruption, rot, or decay. He who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life now and in eternity. Let us not grow weary while doing good. Hey, listen, it's not easy to do good, is it? It'd be nice if it was. We have those moments where it's very easy to do good. People are paying attention and we can sort of show off and there, I was the martyr for the moment. I did good. When... Our natural tendency is to react in sinfulness, turning the whole ship around and going the opposite direction and, and manually, physically doing what is good rather than what is... That's very hard. When we're already set, when our natural tendency is there and the opportunity says you should behave like this, it's really hard to go the opposite direction. Don't grow weary in doing Good. Why? Because we'll begin to sow to the flesh, and then we have to harvest that. I know we're already a couple minutes past. I want to remind us of this. There are spiritual laws, spiritual laws, physical laws, scientific laws, right? Law of gravity. We all get up on the roof, step off the edge. The law of gravity takes over. We plummet to the ground, and entropy takes over as we destroy and break whatever we do when we hit the ground. Spiritual laws are as unbreakable as physical and scientific laws. What you plant spiritually, that's what you're going to harvest. Have you pursued the flesh endlessly and tried to be a Christian? And why does all this junk keep coming up? Because I'm planting to my flesh. And it just keeps yielding back, right? There are certain things... And planting a garden that I like, right? You can keep all of your cilantro. Not interested in that at all. Don't know what it is about cilantro and my wife, but she just thinks that's a, you can keep it. Not interested in cilantro. There's a whole bunch of other herbs I'm into. Not cilantro, right? Brussels sprouts. Don't want them. I, I got no. I'll take your broccoli. I'm okay with your broccoli. I do not want your Brussels sprouts. Right. What is the thing you really like? Do you really like corn? Nothing like sweet corn. Gotta love that. If I want all sweet corn, I should not buy cilantro seeds. I definitely shouldn't plant them. But this is a lot of what Christians do. They just keep shoving the sinfulness into their life. And it grows up and produces Decay and corruption. And they're screaming all the time, what is going on with my life? Stop planting to the flesh. 
Start planting that which is spiritual. You want the good things? you got to plant the good things. And you got to stop planting the other stuff. Right? Was that whole parable Jesus taught about the wheat and the tares? The enemies come in and planted the tares, which look like wheat, but don't have any fruit to them. There's no seed to be harvested out of that. If you're going around and sabotage you know, your own planting and putting bad things in place, you've got to expect you're going to get that back. Another element to these laws of sowing and reaping, I know I'm going long, follow me in this, it's important for us all. Like I've already described, you only get back what you've planted. You can't plant junk and expect good things to come back. Secondly, it doesn't spring up instantly. I'm going to sin. I know this is going to turn out bad. I'm going to do it anyway. It's going to plant and harvest, and I planted, and wow, nothing. Okay. Give it some time. It's coming. That's in the good and the bad, right? Because we plant the good, and we're like, do good. It didn't do good. I'm not planting any more good. This is our messed up approach. As though planting results instantaneous growth. It doesn't. Another element to this law is you always get more than what you planted. That's good when it's good. <laughs> I put one seed of corn in the ground. And this whole stock showed up. And I got all of these kernels of corn on all these ears. Look at all that I got from the one investment. So it is with your sin also. Your flesh. You plant and you get all of it back. Isn't this a one-to-one -one ratio? I did this one bad thing. Why do I have all this junk? Because it multiplies. And lastly, most unfortunately, you have to consume the whole crop. It all belongs to you. Right? You plant it. It grows. It's terrible. Here, you take this. <laughs> doesn't work. It's mine. I've got to own it. These things can be deceptive to us. We plant. It doesn't spring up immediately. We go, hey, no consequences. <laughs> Here it comes. The consequences show up, begin to sprout, and we think, oh, that's going to be terrible. But at least it's small. Wait, it's huge. Wait, it's filled my whole life. Well, somebody else will help me with this. Nope. It's yours. You've got to harvest it and consume it. The beautiful thing is, Christ has planted a boundless harvest for us. That's all from his good. And we get to harvest that. We've got to get to the place where, like these people, we behave as, okay, so I want to be on your side, so I'm going to have to come over there and stand with you. Jesus. I'm going to have to abide in Christ. I can't break away. I can't do my own thing. This nation right here gets this brief opportunity to stand on their own, and they fail miserably. The biggest reason they fail, they don't fear God. You can chase it all the way down through all of the other elements of Moses and Aaron and the golden cow. The bottom line is they don't fear God. They should by now. Amen. We should by now. Amen.
Let us at least be reflective of their eventual maturity. That we would be men and women who don't defame our name and our Lord's name amongst our enemies. What are they going to say if they see us behaving in this sinful way? I don't want them saying those things. I don't want them thinking those things about my Lord. Let us walk in obedience with him. Amen? Amen. Well, thank you for your patience. Let's stand and we'll pray. Listen, if you were not planning on staying, didn't know there was fellowship dinner, please, if you can at all, take the opportunity to stay. Share a meal with us, fellowship. The Lord will bless our time together. Father, we thank you for your word, for your graciousness. Help us to live in obedience to you, Lord. We long for your love to work in our hearts and minds, to draw us close to you. Forgive us for our sinfulness. Help us to be obedient, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.